All right, everybody, welcome back to Psychiatry Unboxed with the kick strength. That's me, Dr. Salman Aziz Mirza. Okay, I have a wonderful guest, someone I've been like uh, following. We've been chit-chatting here and there for a while, um, but finally we're able to like get onto the show, Dr. Arash Javanbak. Uh I'm going to have him introduce himself and a little bit of his background and all that stuff, and then we'll jump on in. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm Arash. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm specialized in trauma, stress, anxiety. As a clinician, I work with people with all sorts of anxiety disorders and trauma, specifically refugees, survivors of torture, first responders, civilians with different sorts of trauma exposure and PTSD. On the research side, I look at anything that trauma does to the brain, to the body, to the genes, epigenetic changes how we can advance our treatments and make the treatments better and more effective. Uh, whether it's uh, basically looking at art and dance and movement therapy and mindful yoga and how they can help with trauma and PTSD, or very advanced mixed reality technologies that you wear these Iron Man goggles and you're in a different world <laughs> and you interact with these humans you would avoid in normal life. I also am very much engaged in public education through different media outlets talking about areas of public interest and in what we do, whether it's uh, social impact of mass shootings or politics of fear and anxiety or why we love to be scared and things like that. I'm very yeah. happy to be on your show. I am a big fan. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I, and I, we're, I know we were talking a little bit before, but like, you know, again, this is always an excuse for me to kind of talk to cool people. So and you do it very right. well. <laughs> I try. I try my best. All <laughs> right. All right. So First question, I always start off with like a surprise question. So we're going to talk about fear. We're going to talk about trauma, being afraid, anxiety, all that stuff. Going back, we're going to go back to like either childhood or cell or even currently. Like, what are you afraid of? <laughs> uh, so we actually, uh, we will talk about my book. And the introduction yeah. of this book starts with a childhood scene. Mm -hmm. where I'm standing on top of a ladder, looking down. So I had, this was this uh, balcony. My um, There was a, this construction building we were doing, and I my mom goes up the ladder, and I follow her, and then she comes down, and now I'm up there. I look down, and I'm yeah. freaking out, and I realize, yeah, I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> and that was one of my biggest fears. It took a lot, a lot of work on her side to convince me to step down the ladder and be assured and safe. Uh, but since then, I've uh, like I've dealt with this fear, and uh, I can talk more about how I even overcame this fear again by another accident. I did a yeah. mule ride down the Grand Canyon, not knowing how scary it would be, but that basically ended up being my exposure therapy, and I'm not afraid of fights anymore. <laughs> So you you were flooded with the flooded, I guess, right? With the the mule ride down there. Yes, yeah, somebody. One of my I had just this vacation during my residency. I had to use yeah. it, and a friend said, "Hey, why don't you do a mule ride down the Grand Canyon?" And I love the desert. I love the nature. I said, yeah, let's do it. I go there. I'm sitting on this huge mule, and then I see you see a few thousand feet below. <laughs> oh my goodness! It's a steep wall, and the mules love to walk on the edge of the uh, basically path. And, but I had no way back. I was very embarrassed to say, I can't do this. So yeah. it was a few hours of horror, but it really helped me. I'm not a physicist and I've even done, like, uh, I've even flown in a fighter jet and done roles in that. So it, it, it was yeah. very helpful for me. 
Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we'll jump into, we'll talk about it, but like the exposure is so helpful. Like I remember when I was a teenager, you know, I think like all brown kids, um, our parents were, were not big on like athletics and swimming. So like, you know, I didn't know how to swim until I was like, you know, an early teenager. And then oh. all of a sudden I'm taking like swim lessons with like four-year-olds. I was like, this is awkward, very weird. <laughs> but, you know, part of, part, part of the whole thing is like, you know, you go up there and you jump off the diving board. And I remember myself the first time i was up on one of the high diving boards right not just like the side diving board oh, yeah. the high one and i was like paralyzed right i think i was up there for like 10 minutes before, before i finally jumped and then you know everyone's like you know jump off the board jump off the board and so i finally jumped off and and after that you're like oh my god this is amazing i love this right and uh -huh. you know since since then you become like you know the roller coaster junkie and jumping off stuff and all that fun stuff so and you learn so much something new about yourself right you have to go through that tough experience to learn oh i can be not afraid of this or and oh i can enjoy all these other things which i wouldn't if i didn't stand yeah. on that edge and that day yeah yeah even like yeah jumping out of airplanes doing skydiving and stuff like i remember doing that i was like this is amazing this is great so yeah I can do that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day, one day, but oh. all right, all right. Let's talk about, I know one of the reasons I brought you on, because I, I know that I was reading some article and you talked about trauma and and the misconceptions, misrepresentations of trauma, the word being tossed around so, so easily nowadays. Um, and now everything is trauma, right? There, There's a lot of psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, et cetera, who else were just like, oh, trauma is everything. You know, trauma causes ADHD, trauma causes autism, trauma causes blah, 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 blah. And it's like, mm -hmm. trauma is important, but it's not everything, <laughs> right? Expand on that a little bit, or kind of maybe sometimes some of the things that you're seeing. Yeah, and we do that all the time, right? Uh, when the era of psychoanalysis was hot, everything that is wrong in your life is because of whatever your mom did when you were a kid. Then psychopharmacology came in, and now you want to fix everything with a medication. Even if some, I always say, like, if someone is being in an abusive relationship or a painful job, my medication is not going to do anything about that. So right. We become very simple-minded, and I think with this fad of trauma, I think part is, yes, I mean, there was a time that it was stigma and we were all avoiding talking even about trauma or PTSD. Then it became something acceptable. And well, of course, it's a business opportunity for a lot of people. So you see on mm -hmm. all these social media, people who either want a business financially or emotionally or getting followers and getting credit and credibility, they do that. And for a lot of people, it becomes an explanation. We want always an explanation for what's going on. And we have done it throughout our history. There was a time that <clears throat> we blamed it on God. We blamed it on animals. We blamed it on nature. Then it's your uterus. Then it's your liver. Then it's the different things and the, or the evil spirits. So we always want to yeah. find a reason for what is happening to us. And the farther from us, the more comfortable we feel. But going back to it, and I see that a lot, uh, both, as you said, among professionals and non-professionals, that they talk about trauma in a very loose term. And that yeah. has risks. And there are two risks. One risk is for those people who really have experienced trauma. 
now they feel difficult to talk about it, right? They feel like, oh, now how will people look at me? Because look at these other people who are paying, getting so much attention or just talking so loosely about it. I don't want to be seen that. And then I see it a lot with people, especially people who are supposed to feel tough. I work with first responders a lot. Yeah. They avoid that. They're like, oh, look, all these people are talking about trauma and I don't want to. And this, this is a person who was shot in the chest. And yeah. we are talking about that trauma in these people. <clears throat> And then the other negative aspect it has is for those people who wrongly are diagnosed or diagnose themselves with trauma, because now it's debilitating. So you just basically say, I have a serious difficult condition, which is out of my hand, because also most of those narratives are not that, okay, here, trauma, let's fix it. It's like, oh, okay, now you have all the rights to feel all the terrible things you're feeling because of the trauma. It's basically kind of an enabling or disabling people, I would say. Right. So going back to trauma, what trauma is in our language, you're talking about horrible, difficult situations, which are extremely terrifying to any human at any level. And it's a possibility of loss of your life or physical sexual integrity. You're talking about assault, robbery, abuse, rape, uh, war, serious motor vehicle accidents, serious illnesses, you're almost dying in the ICU. This is what <clears throat> a natural disasters. This is what we define as trauma in our world. And then yeah. some people feel that if what they have identified as trauma is not trauma. Now, for example, oh, I had a, do you hear that? I had a traumatic conversation with my boss, right? My boss yelled at me or um, me and my partner had a traumatic argument or I had a traumatic divorce. Of course, trauma could be there. But let's say sure. we had a lot of fights over money and I call it now traumatic. Some people think if you remove the word trauma from these experiences, it means that they were not tough. No, they are tough experiences. You and I talk all about it all the time about adjustment disorder, all different sorts of anxiety and anxiety disorders coming out of very stressful life experiences. But right. trauma is a different story because it also has a different impact and it has a different approach to its treatment. Yeah, it, it's, it comes back to the conversation of little T trauma and big T trauma, right? Is that like, you know, is it's it's different because people they almost get into like a trauma competition um you know especially when we have like treatment groups you know i do a lot of work in like a php setting with mm -hmm. teens and adolescents and we we make sure to like not talk about that stuff in the group setting as much but it almost you know we hear it from like the inpatient setting right or the kids who come to us from the inpatient setting it becomes a trauma competition well i was assaulted or I, you know, I was bullied and it's like, well, my assault is much more worse than your bullying. And it becomes this like a one up or gamemanship almost. And it's like, you know, these are difficult situations, all of them, <laughs> but it's, you know, there's that aspect of which one is more valid, right. Or, or not. Yeah. And it's just not a good thing to have. No. It's like, I never go and say, oh, my diabetes is better, worse than your diabetes. It's a disease. It's a brain disease we are talking about. I mean, trauma is the event, but the consequences, right. if you're talking about, let's say, PTSD and other consequences of trauma, we are talking about the disease, and I don't know why and how I should be proud of having a disease. Actually, what I do in my practice is say, okay, you have this. We want to get rid of this. You don't want to have this. Right. And even the times that I tell people, no, you don't have the PTSD, I say it's a good news. It's, it is a good thing. Yeah. I, you know, when I run through my trauma checklist doing like during the intakes and, you know, if we get a negative trauma screen, I was like, good, you know, this is a good thing. We're like, this is absolutely a fantastic thing that none of these things happen to you. 
Yeah, yeah, and uh, speaking of all that uh, madness out there, I just remembered when you were talking about how people talked about it. I saw this thing. I, I don't have TikTok. I just went on yeah. to see what's going on when I was writing that other article about that drama, and I saw somebody saying, "If you apologize too much, you have PTSD." And then this yeah. other person reacts to him and said, no, you don't have PTSD. If you apologize too much, you have complex PTSD. That's another term that is being like used so much these days. And it just, uh, in reality, why would I even want to? I never go to a random person, social media without any cre- credentials to learn if I have diabetes. Why would I want to learn about my trauma? Right, right. We'll come back to complex PTSD. I know that's like a hot button issue in itself, but you had mentioned a little bit before about the biological effects, the physiological effects of neurobiology, of fear, anxiety, and trauma itself. Can you talk a little bit about that? What happens to the brain after trauma? So I always say to understand fear, you have to understand the context within which it evolved. Because usually in, in the modern life, we look at fear and anxiety the same way we look at appendix and infected appendix. It's like an ex- the unnecessary things you have to throw away. But in reality, that's not the case. There's a function to fear. There's a function to these kind of reactions. And the function has been to protect us, keep us safe. And this brain evolved. And this is the fear response is so basic and primitive that right now researchers look at the brains of rats and mice to understand about the human brain and how fear works within it. The function of fear is to protect us against destruction. And the destruction we are talking about is the destruction of 10,000, 50,000 million years ago, which was what? It was a rock falling on my head, uh, an earthquake, a predator attacking me, or another human attacking me with a rock. And the reaction to all of those had to be quick, had to be physical. And that's why we feel all the things we feel when we are scared in the body and the brain. <clears throat> Let's say I was afraid of uh, public speaking and coming here, having this conversation with you. My heart's pounding. My uh, breathing is short. My hands are sweaty. Mom's spaghetti on my sweater. Why am I doing this? Why is something which is supposed to protect me is going against me? Because in reality, going back 50,000 years ago, if you and I were in front of each other and you didn't like me, Chances were in a matter of minutes, I would be dead or seriously injured or I had to run away. So these reactions happen because it's like that primitive human is always in me and it reacts to things. It's confused, especially in this modern world, it's confused. So going back to what happens in the brain, we have this thing, amygdala, uh, almond shape, tiny part of a temporal lobe right near our ear. Its job is what we call salience detection, to say what is the emotional relevance of what I see to me. Should I run away from it? Should I attack it? Should I eat it? Should I have sex with it? Basic instincts. You see yeah. something, amygdala immediately says, oh, I saw a snake. I have to be afraid of it. Then there's hippocampus next to it. We know of its role in learning and memory and dementia when it's impaired. But it also is involved in learning what is safe and what is not safe. Because we learn some of it. Let's, we, none of us were born with the fear of guns because guns was not in our evolutionary genetics. So we learned Hippocampus is involved in that, also processing the context. Let's say I see this snake, amygdala freaks out, and hippocampus looks around the context and says, oh, we are in the zoo, I shouldn't be afraid, and reduces the fear. And then there's the prefrontal cortex, the modern brain we talk about, which is involved yeah. in reducing the fear response. You tell me, hey, this snake is safe, and it's not poisonous, and I reduce my fear. And of course, it can also... Uh, 
create fear. You tell me, oh, you should avoid this group of people and I will be afraid of them. Racism, nationalism, all those things that we <clears throat> see in the modern life. So in trauma reaction, especially when it becomes pathological, actually in the acute phase, the brain goes in high alert, fight and flight. Yeah. I want to protect myself against this happening. But when the trauma is sustained and the impact is long-term, like PTSD, it stays in that high level of arousal, constantly screening for a threat. And we can talk about symptoms of PTSD later. But the amygdala is constantly firing. It is on high alert, and the prefrontal lobe and the hippocampus are weakened, and even their structure is shrunk and damaged. So they cannot control the amygdala. It basically goes, uh, amygdala goes rogue. Yeah. And then in like the day-to-day life, how does that show up? I guess so PTSD symptoms, yeah. So basically brain stays in the fight and flight mode. And its job yeah. is to protect me against any chance of this thing happening again. Just let me mm-hmm. use an example. We'll learn things by experience. Yep. A dog attacks me and I'll learn to avoid that dog. And that has an evolutionary purpose. It would be stupid for me to be attacked by a bear 50,000 years ago. And next time I see a bear, go try to pet it. So I learned okay. to <clears throat> avoid birds. And if I really lost a limb to the bear, now I will avoid all colors and sizes of bear, not only that one bear. We generalize this fear. And the more painful, the more we generalize it. We can also learn it from other people. Somebody attacked one of my tribe mates. A bear attacked one of my tribe mates. And it would be stupid for the rest of the tribe to go approach the bear. We learn the bears are dangerous. And that's how vicarious trauma happens, like in first responders or other or refugees or people who see trauma happening to others, or, like journalists. So brain now is in that heightened state, and it generalizes fear to anything that could resemble in any shape, way, or form what we, are, uh, what we experience. So some of the symptoms are flashbacks, right? You have... Yeah. Uh, it's as if the thing is happening here. You see the things, especially when they are triggered. Let's say 4th of July, you're a person who comes from shooting experience or a veteran with combat or refugee with war experience. Fireworks uh, go off, loud noise, reminds you of war. Then you all of a sudden you see you're there. You hear the sounds. You smell the smell, especially with survivors of, uh, let's say, sexual assault. They smell the uh, or they feel the touch. That's one. Then frequent nightmares. Nightmares keep coming. Yeah. The experience comes back, keeps coming to the person. There's uh, memories keep coming. You don't want them. You push them away. They keep coming. You push them away. They keep coming. Unwanted. And that leads to high level of anxiety. It's not just a memory that, okay, I don't like this memory. No, that memory feels so real that your body starts having very intense fear responses, panic attacks. Uh, there's avoidance. Uh, people with PTSD avoid a lot of things uh, that could resemble in any way, shape, or form uh, activities to the point that some people even, because most of traumas are perpetrated by humans in the modern world, right? So they right. start avoiding humans. They start avoiding, let's say, sexual assault. They avoid men or they avoid anything. I have people, uh, even I have cops with PTSD who don't want to even go to grocery store. They do grocery yeah, shopping yeah. online. And that causes a lot of disability. And then there are symptoms of uh, constantly being on alert, right? You're, somebody taps you on the shoulder and you jump. You're jumping and people can get angry. Anger uh, is sometimes irritability is sometimes a part. And, and the whole perception of the world and oneself changes. You cannot trust others. The uh, world is a dark, gloomy, ugly place. Uh, 
even your ideologies change because each of us have a definition and understanding of the universe, uh, whether it's religious or other ways of thinking. And then, but so you're a religious person and then you believe everything is fair in the world and God helps people who are good. And then the worst thing happens to you. The worst thing that a human yeah. can experience is done to you or you see done to others. Then you have to redefine. And those perceptions could also uh, uh, apply to oneself. I'm damaged. I'm not uh, a good person anymore. I'm dirty now. I am all these negative experiences which you and I in the clinic work a lot mm -hmm. with patients to reduce those because it's really take the joy out of people's life and a lot of them cannot even enjoy the things you used to enjoy in the past. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's devastating. It's unfair a lot of the times, right, that these things happen. And one of, like, the techniques, like, I learned and that I thought was, like, super, super interesting was um, doing what's called, like, a responsibility pie chart, um, mm -hmm. where you ask, you know, the person in front of you to say, like, hey, you know, write, make a pie chart, divvy it up and kind of give up your your slices or percentages to like how much is like so-and-so's fault, right? Like how much of this mm -hmm. is my fault? How much of this is, the for example, the assailant's fault? And a lot of times in that beginning part, you see that shift or you see that that personal responsibility is so, from the outside perspective, so un, un, like unbelievably high, mm -hmm. right? And And we get this messaging, right? You know, we'll use the example of like, um, sexual assault and you know i should have started this whole thing is that like you know we're talking about trauma so there's trigger warnings so you know if you need to kind of take a little break just take a little break but like um sexual assault for example right so many mm -hmm. times we see um oftentimes women right oftentimes mm -hmm. women who've been assaulted like they'll say that responsibility is so high well like i shouldn't have been drinking that night i shouldn't have worn this and we get these these messages that kind of reinforce that from the outside world Absolutely. as well and you know they'll say something like 100 percent, this is my fault or 90 percent, this is my fault that this thing occurred and you know when you do the work your your job is to kind of like reduce that personal responsibility to like you know ideally zero because it's never anybody's fault that these things happen to them right it's this assaulter's fault the person who did the assailing right absolutely um, if i'm walking if if somebody's na walking naked on the street it doesn't right. justify anybody touching them, right? And right. I think a big part of this is also because we are creatures of meanings and we always want to create a meaning and make associations about why things happen. Metaphor I use is that the bird just happened to be there when the cat was hungry and the cat caught yeah. the bird. The bird didn't do anything wrong. And sometimes one of the things I do with patients is to remind them there's no meaning. You just happen to be there when that thing happened, when the shooter was there, when the perpetrator was looking for someone to assault, and just happened to be there. And sometimes things in life are random. I know it's a very important thing that happened to your life and in your life, but it was random. There's nothing you did to deserve this. Mm -hmm. Talk to me yeah, a little bit more about that, so the personal meaning of it. I know that's something that you brought up and discussed, um, but like, is there additional aspect of that beyond what you just kind of mentioned yeah, or what so people I, look for. Yeah, in this book, uh, actually, we didn't talk about the book, but well, yeah, we also in book. the book. <laughs> oh, yeah, because uh, so Give this is point. actually, this is the book. Uh, yeah. Great. So I've basically here I've talked about, and I brought it up, I will say why. Uh, yeah. uh, we talk about, it's basically an encyclopedia of fear. I talk about fear and anxiety from evolution to 
have a learn or learn fear why we want to be scared and while I, they could people come pay you to treat their anxiety they also go pay a haunted house to be afraid of, to experience fear uh what is the <clears throat> what are the diseases how we treat them what are the cutting edge to how can we even use anxiety to our own advantage things like that and politics of fear and anxiety media how to protect ourselves against all these negative impacts that is out there and there's a chapter on fear and meaning that was one of the uh, deeper experiences I had when I was writing this because, as I said, we have ideologies. We define things. We different, basically interpret things based on our own understanding. You and I come from different biology. We come from different backgrounds, experiences, cultures, uh, thoughts, ideologies, uh, spirituality, religion. And then anything that happens to us, we create a meaning for it based on those mm -hmm. and one of the important parts of the trauma ex experience is the meaning we create for it and about it never two people experience even the same thing the same way in research right. in a simplistic way we say oh these five veterans had a war experience and they have the same trauma no even if there's four veterans here and something and, <clears throat> and a rocket goes off next to them they have different experiences. One of them saw their own partner like being torn apart in pieces. One of them had lost a brother in this. One of them just passed out right away and didn't see anything. One of them lost a limb. Each of them have a different experience here. And then comes the aspect of how you interpret this, how you define this. <clears throat> I have a, I, I don't know if you've seen the movie Life is Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yep. So <clears throat> there's this uh, uh, Roberto Benini, this uh, father who is uh, during the World War Two, I believe. Yeah, he's put yeah. in a concentration the camp. Holocaust, yeah, yeah. yeah, and he basically sneaks, uh, sneaks uh, his little son in the camp to be with them and be safe. And then he tells this story to this kid that, okay, you see the tank in the yard? That's There's a game, and we're competing to win the tank, and whoever survives without complaining of all these adversities will win the tank. So kid is having fun in the concentration camp while everybody else, else is terrified and uh, suffering. It's a story, but there's something to it, the meaning that we create, and then <clears throat> affects the way we are touched by the trauma. And one of the things that you and I do in the clinic is to help people fine-tune those meanings to something more realistic and adaptive. But trauma can also change the meanings you have for life, right? Mm -hmm. The trauma can change your understanding. Any tough life experience can do that. Sometimes that's a better meaning. For example, uh, you're talking about fear of heights. When you're standing on the edge of a cliff in Arizona, mm -hmm. what you're afraid of is your annihilation. What you see is death at the bottom of that uh, right. uh, cliff. And when you come back, compared to that, how much really does the, I don't know, some argument you had with your colleague at work or your boss nuts or liking or not liking what you did, uh, how important that is. It basically puts things in perspective. For so far, for some people, like you see this a lot in first responders or uh, veterans of war who have seen the realities of the worst thing. And now things in life don't shake them much because now they have a more resilient ideology. But it could also be the other side that we create a meaning that the world is a terrible place and I'm a damaged person and I'm not a good person anymore. We talked about uh, survivors of sexual assault thinking for decades about what did I do wrong for this to happen to me. I see it so much in first responders, firefighters, cops, uh, this uh, EMTs that 
for years. Ten years later, this cop is sitting in front of me crying, thinking about what he did wrong that his partner got shot and he couldn't mm-hmm. save him. Survivor's guilt. Or why, what yeah. did they do? How could have they saved that baby that they did a CPR on and didn't, so didn't survive? So this is a double-edged sword, the meanings we have for anything in life. Yeah. And then I know you do a lot of work also. You were talking about with the with the VR and the technology or the augmented reality, I guess, mm-hmm. to say, or the AI. Talk to us about that because I found that to be like, you know, it's it's everyone is afraid of the AI and technology and stuff. And I was like, well, there's there's ways that it can be super helpful and good. And it's always good to see kind of new ways of it in, in the world. Absolutely. So augmented reality is different than VR. In a way mm-hmm. that I use the example of Iron Man. Iron Man, yeah. what he had was augmented reality. So you imagine you wear these sunglasses, you see the real world around you, but then I can put something digital in your world. I mean, the stupid form of it is the Pokemon Go, right? You <laughs> yes, yeah. combine virtual and real. <clears throat> but now these uh, the goggles are so advanced. So we saw, uh, which we use it uh, for treatment of uh, things people avoid. So I started this with fear of a simple phobia, fear of spiders, yeah. because yeah. exposure therapy we know works, but if someone comes to my office and says, I'm afraid of spiders or dogs, I don't have spiders or dogs in my office. Right. So they wear the goggles. There's a tiny spider I put in a corner of the room, and then I can tell that spider where to crawl, where to go, and then make him bigger, make him smaller. At some point, the room is crowded with 20 uh, crab-sized tarantulas craw- crawling all over the place. And this is because this is 3D and the patient sees me and they're able to walk around the room. It becomes a lot more immersive. So we started with that and uh, we published the clinical trial a few years ago. Everybody with fear of spiders was able to touch a real life tarantula in less than one hour, one session or the tank containing the tarantula. That was just one session. That impressed, that surprised myself. And that tarantula's name is Tony Stark with a C because... uh, (laughs) My research clinic is Stress, Trauma, and Anxiety Research Clinic, Stark, with a C. So we named him Tony Stark. And now we are running a clinical trial for fear of dogs. That's the same thing. People come after one hour of treatment, uh, come and hug the Great Pyrenees. I mean, especially people coming from our region, right? You and I, really, right. <laughs> where a lot of people were not comfortable with dogs because they didn't oh, grow yeah. up around dogs. Uh, but now then we moved it to the realm of PTSD. <clears throat> so a lot of people with trauma and PTSD, because of the trauma, they avoid anything human related. They don't right. want to go out. They don't want to go to a grocery store. They don't want to go to a party. They don't want to go to a, a movie theater, a restaurant. So basically they become housebound. And that's something which most treatments do not address, like uh, psychopharmacology or traditional th- therapies. They help the person overcome their nightmares and flashbacks, and they don't have much of the symptoms of PTSD, but avoidance is still there. So what yeah. we do is that you wear these goggles, and a virtual door opens on the wall, and a couple of people walking and standing in that corner have a conversation with each other. Then other people coming, and gradually more and more and more people, and now I've thrown a basically crowded room party for you. And you walk around with them, around them, try to talk to them, and this is so realistic and immersive. I had people like with hands shaking in a corner like this, terrified oh, wow. of these characters. Uh, not that I enjoy terrifying people, but we need that fear response for the treatment to work. Right. And <clears throat> so we are using it for first responders. Also, we created like a, a police, the world car room, a fire station, 
we uh, have a like a grocery store now right now actually right after this I have a meeting with my with our programming team these are people who have worked with Marvel and Disney and we are yeah. going to now create let's say bowling alley but then there's a part that I can also customize these conversations so I choose I have a library okay. of 60 some characters of different age sex race body type behavior background I put them in front of you and then I tell them what to do and what to say so you can have a conversation with them the AI aspect that we are starting to incorporate now is I can write a brain for that character. Yeah. Then that character will have an automated conversation with the patient. So now you can see the use utilities go beyond uh, trauma. First of all, let's say survivor of rape. They can talk to a man, now practice talking to a safe man next to their therapist. Or let's say someone with autism wants to practice socializing, social anxiety, someone wants to practice a job interview, someone wants to practice a talk, someone wants to practice dating. All of that can be done with the AI now. It's it's super, I mean, like, I'm just fascinated with it, just because I think, you know, we're, we've been watching Terminator movies for 30 years or whatever it is. And it's like, yeah, it's like, we're, we're, we're following the script, that script of like, <laughs> soon they're gonna end us. But I was like, but you know, along the way, before the AI is like, killed us all as like they were very helpful and they helped us do all these things that that you know that you're discussing and i think it's so fascinating because you know again like when you're talking about things like kids with autism and social anxiety you know like part of where i work is they have a school that's attached to it and you know they have special need kids kids a lot of kids with autism and what they will oftentimes do is they'll just walk them down the clinical hallways and just be like hey can we stop in and have a quick conversation with you? And, mm-hmm. you know, that's just, just exposure, right? This is all that it is. Or again, therapists will just do similar, like, oh, can you just, you know, can you sell pizza, you know, or the, you know, things like the coffee cart, the, the yeah. pizza sales for them. And it's, it's all exposure to it there. And this is just another way. And especially with, you know, during COVID and the way when we were kind of like stuck at home, and then even now, like, you know, telehealth is it's not going back, right? There's no mm-hmm. going back from telehealth. It is here forever now. Like it's, and especially in psychiatry and therapy, it's, it's here forever. It's never going to go away now. Um, but this is such a, a great application of, of this technology that's there. Absolutely. It's really exciting. Have, yeah. And you have full command of all these characters because even when you take someone to this school or i don't know if i bring my own dog to the clinic my dog gets excited yeah. and doesn't listen but this dog listens to you it's like the characters you choose right. all of your characters and create the scenario and put them there and you tell we which one of them say exactly what and how to act so there's a lot mm-hmm. of potentials of course i also have my concerns about ai because soon sure. we'll have these ai companions that are train on trillions of data bits about humans and they learn everything about you and how you can be triggered because their job is prediction so they can predict what triggers you engages you because the the whole idea is maximum engagement so facebook social media all of those same happens here and then at some point why would people want to have a partner why would they want to go through other relationships with their own pains uh that's my biggest fear from the ai yeah, it it becomes what was that that movie with uh, Joaquin Phoenix? I think it was her or something yeah. like that, where he yeah. falls in love with the the AI companion. Yeah, and so that's it's it's there. So there's there's pros and cons of all of it, but Absolutely. like any technology, right? Like you know, social media and and media itself too. Like pros and cons of all this stuff. So mm-hmm. talk about 
that a little bit to just kind of fear and anxiety put on us in like mainstream media and social media and everything that comes along with that. So one of the, I talked about how we learn to be afraid of things, right? Yeah. I'm bitten yep. by a bear. I watched someone being bitten by a bear. And then there's other tribe mates or the elders telling me that, hey, don't go to that corner of the woods. There's a bear there. That has been an evolutionary advantage. We have been able to learn what to avoid. But that also is a loophole that can be taken mm -hmm. advantage of. Fear is a very consuming emotion. Anytime you're afraid of something, everything else loses their colors. You just see the color of fear. Let's say you have a neighbor. You don't trust this neighbor at all. You hate them. You don't even want to talk to them. You go out. They see you and they say, hey, Salman, did you know there is a shooter on the loose in our neighborhood? You come back inside. Because that is not where you want to risk. So our trust becomes too big. And we also become tribal when... Uh, we are afraid because now we want to protect ourselves against the others. And that's something both in the realm of media and politics are being abused a lot. So with the oh, media, yeah. especially in this day and age, because there's so many of these media and social media, they all need attention. And they have learned the algorithms. It's not There's no malicious intent for the algorithms. The algorithms want your maximum engagement. Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, they want your maximum engagement. At the end of the day, they are corporations. And for any corporation, the top priority is revenue. And for right. revenue, they need maximum engagement. And for maximum engagement, the learning has been that emotions work. Anything that excites you, keeps you attached, keeps you hooked, keeps you scroll, keeps you tapped, right? Whether that is positive or negative emotions, what are the posts that you get interested in? You look at a uh, happy puppy, you look at something sexually exciting, you look at something emotionally exciting or something negative, horrible, scary. Uh, listen to Hannity on Fox, listen to Wolf Blitzer on CNN. Excitement, that's like, that is the bigger part of the news. Nobody, of, none of them now come like traditional news reporters with this solid right. face and monotonous voice. No, there's a lot of excitement because they have learned that's how you keep watching. And then they have learned that negative emotions are more <clears throat> engaging, specifically uh, uh, fear. And that is yeah. all media. Even there have been studies that have looked at the different media outlets of different sides, left, right, different countries, and they found negative has become extremely much. Just, just open any of these TV news channels, as I said, the, yeah. the, the main ones now, right? Watch it for one hour. How many good news will, it, they'll tell, will they tell you? Even if there's a good news, it follows with buts, right? Yeah. And... Uh, Basically, your perception is the whole world is falling apart. The whole world is going down. Of course, there's a lot of bad in the world happening, but yeah. uh, it's also good. And unfortunately, in the modern life, especially COVID and post-COVID time, our only window to the world outside of our house has become media and social media. And right. that leads to basically skewed perception. A lot of people are scared. A lot of people are terrified. They're stressed. And... I talk to my patients. I've actually talked in the book about it a lot, about how to fight this. Uh, for example, all of my patients, you want to watch TV, watch that one anchor who is like the most, uh, the least emotional one. Like I say, you want to watch CNN, watch Anderson Cooper. And uh, one hour, 
because the rest of the day and they're very lazy it's just like repetition of the same thing it's not that oh yeah in the rest of the world, even third world countries, you open TV news for one hour, they tell you a lot of things about everywhere in the world. But here, it's just like repeating the same thing over and over. And when it comes to social media, then the same thing happens with the algorithms. The algorithms want to find out what you like and what engages you, right? Let's say you add Elizabeth Warren. Uh, you follow mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders on social media. Then they say, okay, so he likes this person. Let me see who else is like this. Then they show you this other person who is on the left, right? And then more, and do you follow them? Then you follow what, who they follow. And then gradually more and more, it moves you to the very, very left corner of the left tribe. Right. Now all you see is left. And you are in yeah. an echo chamber. Everybody you're following and everybody who's following you is saying the same thing. And thinking the same thing. And you're like, well, so if everybody, and for you, that is everybody. Everybody, If everybody thinks this, so this is the fact and the truth. And what you hear about the right is now, I say their heads on the, on, uh, uh, what is that? Uh, The heads on. uh, Heads in the sand. Yeah. No, the heads on the spike. Yeah. So they basically go bring the worst of, oh, Marjorie Green Taylor said this. Look how stupid the Republicans are. Same is happening on the other side. So people have become too tribalized, too separated. And then there's, there are tribe polices out there, right? Oh, why are you following this person? Why are you listening to this person? You got to block them. You got to stop them. And that has basically caused a lot of division and fear in the society, which is just just stupid. Yeah. And it becomes, you know, I, I, I go back to like my childhood a little bit, like we had cable for a long time and i think where i was in middle school where my dad decided to cancel the cable you know because i think he was you know he said it at that time he's like oh i was having information overload syndrome i was like oh you're you're making stuff up back back (laughs) then but it you know we we see it because it it is this do we need a 24-hour news cycle no nobody needs that much you know just all the time news and then again even with social media and you know the phones in our pockets like you have access to everything anytime you want it and it's like do we want that do we need that do we we don't need to have all that stuff because we're not meant to you know again when we talk about fear and anxiety and and you know commonly when i talk to patients and you know the, the the common thing that people will say is like, oh, just don't worry about it. And it's like, no, no one's telling you to not worry about things. It's like, don't worry about it all the time. You know, I tell them, you know, give them an hour. I say, go for an hour and worry. Uh-huh. You know, save, save, your, save your worries for an hour. Save your worries mm-hmm. for like a 30 minute block. Sit down for that time and be like, this is my time that I'm going to worry about stuff. And then try to cut it off or shut it off. And then be like, oh, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Kind of keep it in a section. Absolutely. Absolutely, that's a that's a very good advice. And and you know what, the the, the continuous twenty four hour cycle is not like that. You're learning more. You're just right. spending more emotions. If you it's watch any of these, yeah. yeah. If you watch them for one hour or twenty four hours, your real facts that you've learned is not different. You're just more emotionally mm-hmm. exhausted. It's at some point becomes a basically a automatic primitive brain working. Like, you, have you seen people pick up their phone? go through Facebook, go through Instagram, go through this thing, then they put it down, then immediately, automatically, they keep they pick it up and go through the same things. This is not the logical brain working. This is the primitive animal brain, basically automatically looking for reward system excitement. The same way we excite the reward system, we also excite the fear system, and anxiety is exciting. Yeah. 
complex PTSD, I know that we touched upon in the beginning. I was like, let's make sure to come back to that. What are your thoughts on it? Because I'm a child psychiatrist. I believe in it, mm-hmm. right? Especially when we're working in things like urban settings and, you know, low-income kind of settings and people are living in these environments where there's, you know, a parent may be missing, there's, you know, substances all over the place, people are mm-hmm. dying and all these things are happening on a daily basis. What are your thoughts on on that and how does it relate to this? So we create labels. Yeah. Right? There is God didn't create or universe didn't create a disease called PTSD. Right. Basically, I'm trauma exposed from zero to hundred percent of symptom severity. At let's say seventy percent we draw a line and we say, okay, even the one above it we call it PTSD. It doesn't yeah. mean a 69 or 65 might not be suffering, right? And you and I right, in the right. clinic know that what matters to us is dysfunction and distress. And that's what we treat. We don't treat symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so trauma could be, I am one person, uh, I have my normal life. I go out, have a terrible uh, car accident or I'm in a shooting and I come back to my normal self-life. That's one trauma. I could be a police officer or a firefighter who sees trauma every single day. I'm a boss in a shooting. I may be shot at. I go clean up after school shooting. I go see a dead person. I try to do CPR on them and constant. So this is now chronic trauma exposure, right? Both we call them PTSD, but they're different. The way I address them, the way I approach them, that cop or firefighter, next day they go back to the same thing. So I have to find ways of basically galvanizing them as much as I can against these trauma exposures, whether cognitively or biologically. But then there are, you talked about people who have had continuous exposure to adversity since childhood and trauma. For this person, a lot of it's not just the trauma impact on PTSD. It's what I've learned about the world, what I've learned about myself, the copings I've learned, how I've learned to cope with things or I've not learned to cope with things. I've learned, okay, anytime there's a disagreement, it's an explosion and I I got to beat you up or you got to beat me up, right? Right. And it becomes, or emotional regulation is not practiced or learned. So there's a lot of these different aspects. Well, you want to call it complex PTSD, that's fine. Which these are the not again labels. All of these different conditions are different, and we have different names for them. But reality right. is what we do with it. In that person, I also have a different strategy in treatment than I have in the other person because now we are talking about the personality. We are talking about the habitual ways of coping and habitual ways of uh, dealing with the stresses. The stressors which are already there. And the person will go back to that home and go back to that house and have to experience the same thing. The abuse is there. The memories of abuse are there. It becomes a lot more, I want to use that word, complex to deal with this in your clinical setting. That's why I don't, and in reality, the reasons we talk about these terminologies is like the beginning of these terminologies was for you and I to have better mutual understanding. And when you and I talk to each other right. or in research, that we know what we are talking about. In reality, in all of these case, three cases, including the what we call complex PTSD, we're talking about trauma with different levels of complexities. That's how right. I look at it. So I really know my clinic don't care much about the as a clinician because now I'm yeah. an expert in this field, right? I don't right. Uh, care much about labels. I care about okay how I can help this person overcome those challenges. Yeah, I, I think it comes back to this kind of like what you had talked about before this need for an explanation or this need for an answer or a a label Mm -hmm. and i think people who do a lot of the clinical work are like you know kind of they're critical of the dsm and not necessarily critical of the dsm but more so people's interpretation of the Uh dsm that it's like 
the, the diagnoses don't matter, right? The names doesn't matter. Like we can call it PTSD. We can call it acute PTSD. We can call it acute stress disorder. We can call it schizophrenia. We can call it schizophreniform disorder. Like it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter what we, what name we put on it. It matters for like billing purposes and all that other stuff, but like, which is its own kind of discussion. But I was like, we're still trying to work with the patient that's in front of us, what they're experiencing, what they're going through, how it affects their life and how we can make, make a difference in that way. Absolutely. And now that we are here, I uh, would like to uh, basically bring it to the, to the audience that you and I, when we diagnose any psychiatric condition, we need one of these two criteria to make that diagnosis, whether it's schizophrenia or PTSD or anxiety or depression. Significant dysfunction, significant yeah. distress. If someone is hearing voices and they're not dysfunctional and not distressed, we don't treat them. We don't call it a mental yeah. illness. So yeah. the dysfunction, significant dysfunction in academic, occupational, social, personal life, and then there's a significant level of distress, which is something very subjective. The patient brings to the store. I don't have a cough that I put on someone's arm and measure their anxiety. And even if I right. had, it wouldn't be much of significance because the person tells me, brings their suffering to me. And I always tell my trainees also, that is what we treat. We treat dysfunction. And we treat distress. And we, when we make that the compass, it's even much easier to work with the patients because now we agree on where we need to work on and how to do it. And yeah, so we are on the same page here. That what matters is that labels. These are names we have created. As I said, the universe right. didn't create any of these things. This is just a continuum of trauma response because trauma has also other aspects of responses. Trauma can lead to. Uh, Depression, trauma can lead to high level of anxiety. Trauma can lead to adjustment problems. Trauma can lead to substance use. People who use yeah. drugs a lot of times ask them some dance to remember, some dance to forget. Why do you do this? A lot of people try to self-medicate themselves. Trauma can lead to aggression and violence. I have a chapter on fear and anger, fear and aggression in this uh, book. It says, I'm afraid, so I'm angry. Basically talks about how these two interact with each other. So it's a very diverse, big world. We are because we have yeah. simple minds. We try to simplify things to understand them better. Yeah, I know we have to wrap up because you have to run and, and pitch pitch a bit. Um, but actually, I am. Uh, I uh, I just got a text message that meeting got canceled. So oh. <laughs> take your time. <laughs> okay, so we got a little more time then. Um, but more. I was like, but still, I was like, we'll we'll kind of get into the other stuff um with trauma work and and you know i think it's one of the things that a lot of people don't people know but they don't talk about right like when you're getting into this world right psychiatrist psychologist mental health world you deal with terrible shit <laughs> you know and and you kind of said it as when you're working with first responders is that aspect i was like people don't always talk about it. like you see the worst of the world right you see these terrible terrible things how do you, what is your self-care for, what is the way that you kind of process and work through this? Yeah, that's the tough part of the job. As I said, as you said, uh, first responders, they see the worst of what humans do to each other and to themselves, and they share it mm -hmm. with me. I work with uh, survivors of torture, and they have seen the worst. It basically shatters your perception of humanity. How could a human yeah. be so evil to enjoy inflicting such horrible pains in others and i said this week i was talking to a police officer she was in the uh sex crime against children unit i don't know the exact yeah. name of it i yeah. forgot the yeah. name but 
imagine what this woman sees on a regular basis and has to investigate, has to go to the details, go to the court and repeat and repeat over and over these things. It's very painful. So for myself, there are times, there have been times I did an interview with a survivor of torture and for a few days I was nauseous. Uh, sometimes I think, how long more can I continue doing this? Yeah. The things that have helped me, <clears throat> number one, is being a physician because mm-hmm. we become cerebral about it. So you come, you could be an orthopedist, see a broken bone, someone crying, but it is not impressing you as much because you have a feeling of a sense of control that you can do something about right. it. Uh, sometimes I, I mean, I try to leave work at work. So I come home, I don't talk to people about it. I spend time with my family and with dogs and my wife and we do normal life things and I work out and, oh my Mm -hmm. God, I wish we could also talk about exercise a little bit. My (laughs) thing is, uh, fitness boxing. I go hit the bag and that's a good discharge. It's mindful experience. It's basically you are in a different world. Um, Other things that could be mindful, I've started this like ice bath thing, basically, uh, that because during those well, two minutes that I'm in the cold water, I cannot think of anything else. To me, it's more of a mindfulness experience. But most important thing that has helped me has been going back to the meaning, the meaning I've created for this. So I remind myself of the purpose of why this per- Actually, let me go back a little bit. Another thing yeah. I do is that I don't overexpose myself to trauma. I just yeah. know as much as I need to know. I avoid voyeurism. Yeah, there are these yes, uh, yes. responders talking about a very interesting, complicated case that they were uh, investigating, but I'm not there to enjoy my own self. I'm there to help them. So right. I limit my exposure to the amount I need to know for the treatment that I'm offering. But coming back to the most important part is <clears throat> I remind myself of the reason I'm doing this. I see a person shattered crying in front of me, but I remember in a matter of weeks or months, they'll be doing much better. And that has been the most important protective factor for myself. I could say that's what has uh, allowed me and helped me to keep going. Yeah. I I always kind of like tell this story. I, you know, back when I was in residency training, I was on to the child, child unit, child psychiatry training or unit over there and we had like the med students working with us and we had this you know this one gung-ho med student who was going to be like she's going to be a surgeon and she's going to be like doing the military and she would like i think she had done some military work already and she's like i'm gonna do military surgery and all this very you know like a go get them and very like super strong and macho buff all that stuff right you know like well all good residents we make our med students call call to get collateral information and we had this you know horrible i think the one of the worst sexual childhood sexual assault abuse cases and you know she's calling and she's getting all the details and you know that aspect where you're talking about the voyeurism she starts to get all the details right mm. and starts and then she's telling me the stuff and you see that that moment right where like it hits her and that humanity aspect of like oh my god this this happened mm-hmm. this isn't just like i'm getting data and it's just some you know chart or some notes on a chart like this is a human being that had to experience these horrible experiences and you just see that moment of like oh, i need to take a step back uh-huh. i need to like sit back and like take a break and it was like at that moment i was like you get it now <laughs> now you're seeing it and i was like go home and take the day off right like and you know you check in with them the next day you know she's like 
exactly kind of what you're saying. Like I had to go for a run. I had to kind of just like sit in the shower, just kind of physically desensitize myself to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really difficult. And I, you know, and again, I, I exactly what you were saying is that reminder to yourself, saying to yourself, like, this is why we do it, right? Somebody has to be that person to help these people. And we do this to hopefully make some differences and you know, again I had, similarly I was like asked I was subpoenaed recently to like for kiddo so I ta- for him to not testify right mm-hmm. in a sexual in another childhood sexual assault case because we knew it would be tra- re-traumatizing mm-hmm. you know and it's just like when you hear them they're like you're, you're, the motion was accepted and he doesn't have to testify you're like did something right mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like it was a win and then we hopefully we saved this kid yeah. change the tra- trajectory of his life in a way, hopefully. And that's a that's a actually a big part, difficult part of all sexual assault cases that when he goes to the court, I've seen people, survivors mm-hmm. of rape, that for months in anticipation of the court case, just thinking yeah. about facing the perpetrator, they're terrified. And I, I don't have an answer or a solution to yeah. how that can be done because at the end of the day, the court needs to do that. And that's very painful, and that's one reason a lot of people avoid it. Don't, a lot of people yeah. drop their cases, avoid they reporting. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's yeah. If nothing else, like the number one reason is that they just don't want to face the person again. They can't face the person again, and they're you know concerned of repercussions and or negative effects. And it's it's you know there's a problem with the justice system where this is the only solution apparently, yeah. and it's like there has to be another way that we can help people, right? Yeah, hopefully so. the system will evolve at some point and find an answer. I mean, I know there are some now, some courts have people or social workers or people who can help the survivor, but uh, yeah, it's very challenging. Yeah. All right. Any plugs? Tell us how can people follow along with you? How can they buy the book and get the book and learn some more? So the book's name is Afraid, and actually that guy standing yeah. up there trying to figure out what is fear <laughs> and afraid is myself who is afraid of heights. <laughs> so, afraid nice. understanding the purpose of fear and harnessing the power of anxiety you can find it on amazon or the publisher website i've tried my best in this book to be concise avoid uh jargon language and also respect the reader's time because i've read a lot of books like this after chapter three i'm like i'm bored because they are still talking <laughs> about their dog the author is still talking about their own life and training and dog it's, I haven't done any of this. Just like, okay, here's the thing, here's the facts, here are examples from my life, from my patients, from this and that, and these are things you can do. So it's, I've tried to be very concise. Where to find me, um, I on Instagram, uh, my name is up there. I post some, uh, so once in a while, I post some uh, educational tips for people, practical tips of how to deal with their anxiety, how to deal with stress. Um, I... Uh, on my uh, uh, clinic website, uh, starklab.org, S-T-A-R-C lab.org, uh, there's uh, a lot about our research and also all the public educational media work I've done, written media, uh, radios, TVs, those are all there if they find the subject of interest they can find. It. Awesome. Well, any parting words or anything before we wrap up? Um. So, what can I say? I would say (laughs) life is short. And 
whatever we do in our life, whether with fear or without fear, we got to consider that you just live once and life is short. And fear and anxiety are things that we don't have to live with because they take away our freedom. And I think for a human, the freedom is the most important thing. It's okay for me to not want to go places or not want to go to a party or not want to go in a high building. It's absolutely okay as long as I make that choice. If fear is making that choice, I'm a slave to it. And there are ways to we can fight it. Uh, uh, we can break and shatter those chains. Awesome. Well, Arash, thank you very much for your time. Hopefully we'll, the book is, does well and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. you. It was a pleasure.